O come, O come, Emmanuel. Yes, Lord, that is the prayer of our hearts. We feel the world is broken. We feel the shadows deepen. And so we long for you to come and make your home with us again, to fulfill all your promises, to redeem creation, and to give us eyes to behold your unveiled glory. Lord, as we eagerly await your coming, would you help us by your Spirit to pay close attention to your word as a lamp shining in a dark place until we see you face to face. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus, he's coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. Hey, now I would imagine <laughs> most of you are familiar with these words of Christmas cheer. Maybe not said in that tone, but rather a more, you know, set to a more cheerful melody this time of year. The song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, originally written in 1934, has become a holiday classic, as well as a classic behavior tool for many parents to motivate their children to obey, at least for the month of December. Now, in my life, this strategy was initially very effective as a young child, as I was highly motivated not to upset this jolly yet un, seemingly unforgiving man from the north. Yet, when the warnings of coal in my stocking never came to fruition, even if I was not on my best behavior, I soon began to ignore the warning the song contained. I concluded that if the story was a little suspect, then maybe my actions no longer mattered. Maybe they were no longer determinative of how I would experience my Christmas morning. Something similar, but much more consequential, was happening in the hearts and the minds of the saints the Apostle Peter was addressing in his letter before us this morning. Seeds of doubt were being sown in the churches as to whether the apostles' message about Christ was true, and particularly the message of Christ's second coming. And this caused believers to doubt if living their lives for Christ today really mattered for how they would experience eternity. To give you a little more context to this letter that we're just jumping into, Peter, the same disciple we've encountered in our time in Luke's gospel, is writing near the end of his life. And in chapter one of this letter, he is calling the church to live holy and godly lives so that they may have endurance to keep the faith and not fall into sin and forsake the king that is to come. And you'll notice that in this letter and throughout the New Testament, the second coming of Christ serves as profound motivation to deny yourself the temptations of the world and to live a life pleasing to God. As one author puts it, we don't want to be found engaging in unholy works when the Holy One returns. We want to be people who are spiritually awake when the Master comes. Now, to be clear, we do not pursue good works and virtue as a means 
to earn our salvation, but as confirmation that we have truly given our lives to Christ. As 2 Peter 1.10 puts it, we are to pursue virtue as a way to confirm our calling and election, not as a means to our salvation. Yet Peter's call for holy living is being sabotaged by false teachers who have claimed that Christ would not come again to judge the world and therefore insisted it doesn't matter how you choose to live. Why? Because there's no coming judgment. We see just part of their argument anticipated in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 4, if you look over just a few pages, when they say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Their argument was essentially, hey, Jesus isn't here. There are no signs He's coming back. So what are we doing? Deny ourselves the pleasures of this world. So let's eat. Let's drink. Let's live it up. For surely we will not have to give an account of ourselves to God. Doesn't this sound a little familiar like the spirit of our world today? Many are willing to accept meek and lowly baby Jesus in the manger each Christmas season, but reject that this same Jesus has the authority to tell them how to live, and that one day He will come back to hold them to account. And in order to combat these false teachers, Peter is going to give the church two pieces of evidence to confirm the reliability of his message. And he'll give an exhortation for why his message matters for them as they await Christ's second coming. And so therefore, my hope today, as we examine the evidence, that we would have a sure and steady confidence in the promises provided to us in the Scriptures, and that we would pay close attention to them as our authority, and as our guide, as we too await our Savior to come and make His home with us again. This morning, we'll examine those two pieces of evidence that Peter puts forward along with his exhortation. If you're taking notes, I've broken it down in three sections. First section, we'll examine Peter's testimony to glory uh, in verses 16 through 18. Second, we'll examine Peter's trustworthy sources in verses 19 through 21. And lastly, we'll examine Peter's exhortation to pay attention. So let's start with the testimony to glory in verses 16 through 18. Look back at verse 16 with me. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So you can surmise, Peter here is responding to the arguments that the message delivered by him and the apostles, particularly the message about the future judgment, were just like ancient and Roman Greek myths, and they were not to be taken literally. Yet we see here Peter fervently opposed this claim and makes clear that what they spoke to them was not a myth, but a trustworthy word, because it was rooted in historical events. And I'm arguing uh, that he's particularly defending his message about the second coming because of the phrase that you see there, power and coming. This is a, a very common phrase the New Testament uses to refer to the final judgment of Christ, or as Peter will later call it in chapter 3, the day of the Lord, drawing from the Old Testament prophets. Peter knows how critical it is for their testimony to be rooted in history, because what you think about the historicity of Christianity will determine whether its message has any authority or real hope for you at all. 
When I was growing up, my parents loved to read to my sister and I before bed, and we had a bunch of different favorite book series, but one of our favorites was The Bernstein Bears, which uh, Jessica and I now often read to our kids. And like many kids' books, these Bernstein Bears, they're a collection of fictional stories that taught children how to handle common life situations or a fine moral lesson. Now, my parents, they never taught me that the Bernstein Bears were, were, were real, uh, but they saw the benefits, right, of teaching me that it's good to share with my sister. It's good not to watch too much TV, and telling the truth is necessary for building trust. The fact that there weren't literally a family of bears that lived in a hollowed-out tree that drove cars and made furniture, that didn't matter. We got out of them what we wanted to get out of them. And as Jessica and I, we read these to our kids, we feel no guilt if we do a little brief verbal editing uh, to make the message of the book kind of fit, you know, more biblically accurate, you know, that we'd like. But unfortunately today, I, I fear this is how many view the events and the commands recorded in Scripture. Many may see the value of the moral lessons of the Bible, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have much authority. So therefore, they see no issue in editing out the things that they do not like to many, uh, it's inconsequential whether the Israelites truly crossed the Red Sea or whether Jesus was really born of a virgin or truly rose from the dead. The important thing is that all things are possible with God, and you can do anything if you have enough faith. Whether the story is fact or fiction is irrelevant. Yet, church, we know that the historicity of the Scriptures is of vital importance Kevin DeYoung in his book, Taking God at His Word, says this. He says, from the beginning, Christianity has tied itself to history. The most important claims of Christianity are historical claims. And on the facts of history, the Christian religion must stand or fall. All the biblical authors, including Peter, they understood this. He knows that if the apostles' message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone is empty of its historicity, that if Jesus wasn't really born in Bethlehem, if he didn't truly rise from the dead in time and space, the authority of the message would be indistinguishable from any other cleverly crafted human story. Therefore, what evidence does Peter provide to give us confidence that Christ's second coming is sure to come? He provides us with us eyewitness testimony to the glory and the majesty of Christ. Look back at our text, verse 16 through 18. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him <clears throat> by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We all know that in order to prove a case in the court of law, it's important to have eyewitness testimony, right? News stations give themselves a little taglines. Channel 6, eyewitness news. Why? Because eyewitness testimony is essential for establishing the truth about what really happened. Let me further illustrate my point. This summer, I had the pleasure and the misery of playing a few rounds of golf with some of the members of our church. Now, if I came to one Sunday morning and I was telling everybody at church that I shot 200 par and on number 16, I hit 
a whole in one. I know that Damian Neal and Dave Hooper would be very skeptical because they know that I am just lucky to make contact with the ball off the tee. But if as I was recounting my story, I said, well, if you don't believe me, go talk to Luke. He was there. He saw it. He was the one who kept score. He was right there when I hit it. He was there for my miracle round of golf. Then even Damien and David, who have seen me shank many a tee shot, would need to reconsider their position. Peter knows the importance of eyewitness testimony to establish the authority of what he's saying. But don't you find it interesting that Peter doesn't provide testimony of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? He doesn't recall the calming of the storm. And in this instance, he doesn't even go back to eyewitness account of the resurrection, which he does elsewhere. But rather, he testifies to the experience with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, if you are here with us a couple weeks ago, you remember Pastor Tommy preached through uh, this text in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 9, the events that led up to the transfiguration were helping us narrow in on the identity of Jesus. Peter had just rightly confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, but then Jesus teaches that he is not the Messiah that people expected, for he was a Messiah that must die and then be raised on the third day. Then Jesus ends this teaching with a very peculiar promise, saying, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Then days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And the Gospels tell us that on this mountain, the same Jesus, who everyone knew from the lowly town of Nazareth, the man who had a questionable conception, who worked an ordinary, laborious job most of his life, this same man began radiating before them. That his clothes became dazzling white and his face changed as it shone before them. And then a voice from a cloud spoke to them declaring, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You may be thinking, yeah, that is definitely a unique and amazing experience. But why does Peter choose this eyewitness event to confirm that Jesus is surely coming back? Well, what Peter saw was not just a unique event among other unique events they witnessed with Jesus. But this event was the most glorious sneak peek the world has ever seen. We all know what a, <clears throat> a sneak peek is, right? You got a special group of people who get to see a movie or a product, experience a product before the rest of the world gets the chance to see it. Well, Peter and the apostles on the mountain didn't just get a sneak peek of, of a new movie. They got a glimpse of King Jesus in all his unveiled glory, the way the whole world would see him when he comes again in power. So do you see Peter's reasoning? He's figuring that the best way to confirm for the church with certainty that Jesus will come again, not as an infant in a stable, but arrayed in power and glory, is to remind them that he has already seen a powerful, glorious, and majestic appearing of Christ on the mountain. And Peter was not alone. This is a, these are we statements here. He has James and John to verify the terror that they all felt in the sight of their glorified Lord. I couldn't help but see the similarities, uh, the description of Jesus uh, on this Mount of Transfiguration with the 
description the Apostle John makes in Revelation 21 and 22 as he describes the new heavens and the new earth. We've been going through Revelation in our men's Bible study, and it says this, the new heavens and new earth, they say, have no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. There were many who missed Jesus' glory in His first coming, but no one will be able to escape the glory on the last day. Peter is telling us that we ought to pay attention to his message, to live holy lives because the message of Jesus is not made up, for he was an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ and an ear witness to the Father's voice of approval for his King. Yet Peter, as we know, didn't just submit his eyewitness testimony to the majesty of Christ for our consideration, but he also submits a trustworthy source to verify the message. Look at Peter's trustworthy source in 19 through 22. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I probably don't have to convince you that in our day, it is becoming more and more difficult to distinguish between a reliable source of information and ones that have little factual basis or are free of bias. The sheer amount of information that's being poured out on the internet from all over the world is so vast that even experienced journalists and news agencies can easily use sources that seem reliable on their face, but end up proving false. And this is extremely discouraging for us common citizens because we don't have time to research every piece of information we read to determine its reliability. But what if I told you I had a source whose information always proves true? What if I told you that its source, my source, never lies and intentions are always pure? What if I told you that countless people have carefully examined this source and no deceit was ever found in his mouth? You'd probably be pretty skeptical at at first, but you wouldn't be able to deny how amazing and how refreshing it would be if it were true. Well, friends, in our text, Peter reveals his trustworthy source that confirms his message. What does he point to? He points us to the prophetic Word of God. And I want you to make sure, I want to make sure you hear this, church. Peter is not just saying you can believe that Jesus is coming back because of what he saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears, but because of what you can see with your own eyes and hear with your own ears, right here in God's holy word. An authoritative document that comes directly from the most reliable of sources, God Himself. So let's unpack what Peter says about God's Word. First, he says that we have the prophetic Word more fully confirmed. What does that mean? Well, Peter is explaining that the events he witnessed on the mountain were confirmation of something he already had. 
something that was already written, something that was already sure or true, even before his experience on the mountain with the other disciples. Well, where do we see Peter's experience foretold in the Scriptures? If you could, turn with me to Psalm 2, Psalm chapter 2. It's a Psalm of David that points to the day when God would anoint His King on a mountain, and He would judge those who have opposed God and His King. Psalm chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will decree, I tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Do you see the similarities with our passage? From ages past, God prophesied a time when he would anoint his son, born in the likeness of men from the line of David, anoint him as king, and he would decree it on his holy hill or mountain. And this king would not be like the other kings. Because he would truly bring justice to the earth. He truly would unite all peoples and all the earth would be his kingdom. And this king, brothers and sisters, is King Jesus who was transfigured on the mountain and one day will come and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he comes again in glory. Peter is saying that this prophecy and the rest of the prophecies about God's plan of salvation and coming judgment were already sure, but are just now more fully confirmed by the apostolic witness. Second, we see Peter talk about this prophetic word, and we can trust all the Scriptures are reliable because Peter tells us in verse 20 again that no prophecy from Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It doesn't come, it's not produced by the will of man but it comes from God as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can trust Peter's source because God himself is the source. Yet, I'm sure you've heard objections that the, the Bible isn't reliable because it was written by fallible men. Yet here we see Peter tell us that we can trust the Scriptures because those who delivered God's Word were not speaking by themselves, but spoke the words of God as they were carried along by His Spirit. Now, to be clear, Peter is not saying that the prophets were robots uh, and God had supernaturally moved their mouth and, and their, their lips and moved, supernaturally moved their quills so that the Scriptures were void of any human touch. But what Peter is saying is that, and what historical Christianity has long affirmed, that the Holy Spirit uses the intellect, the skills, and the personalities of fallible men to write down what is divine and infallible. And this understanding of the dual authorship of the Scriptures is, is spoken elsewhere. We see it in Acts one sixteen. Peter at Pentecost says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. You see that? See the, the two authors? So, brothers and sisters, we, we can trust the Scriptures are true because ultimately they don't come from man, they come from God. 
As Proverbs 35 says, every word of God proves true. So therefore, we can trust that Jesus will come again, will come again because God has said it in His Word. So friends, do you believe that? Do you believe every word in this book is true? Do you believe there are no more truer words about God and how to live a godly life than we read in this book? Or are you seeking your own mountaintop experience or looking outside His Word in order to hear from Him? I remember when I was a kid, my parents, we'd we'd go up to northern Michigan and we'd either camp by the lakes. And I remember taking long walks down in the summer uh, down Lake Michigan. And I would have these adolescent, we'll say, conversations with God while I was there. And, and, and I remember uh, very distinctly, I remember walking and, and saying to God, God, if you would just let me walk on water just for a second, I would trust you forever. And so I would get to the shore and I would just kind of close my eyes and just kind of mentally, okay, and only to have my request for temporary superpowers denied. But I was determined. So I asked again, Lord, I do trust you and I will follow you forever. But it would be really cool if just for a second you could just give me this one sign. I I promise you, I won't even tell anybody. It'll just be between me and you. (laughs) Only to have my requests denied again. Now, was God being cruel to young adolescent Eric? No. Because he has already said everything he needed to say and given every sign he needed for me to trust in him. And friends, Peter here does not tell the church that you need to find your own mountaintop experience or your own special encounter with God. You don't need an extra biblical sign. Rather, Peter says, look at your scriptures. Look at an ancient text, a sufficient word that will guide you in all truth until Christ returns. But maybe you're here and you still have doubts about the truthfulness of the scriptures and what they say about the coming judgment. And my question to you this morning is, well, where do you find your source of truth when you contemplate the deep questions of life? Do you look to another person? Do you look to your favorite podcast? Do you look inside yourself? Are you the final say in what is true or not? Do you have the intellect to know to solve all of the world's problems and discern your true purpose on this earth? If so, that conclusion unsettles me a bit. Because if you're like me, I know the wickedness of my own heart. I know how easy it is for, to lie, for me to lie to myself, how insufficient I am to be the arbiter of truth. Are we as fallible humans truly equipped to come up with a standard of truth that is reliable? Or, as Peter contends, do we need to rely on something outside of ourselves to guide us into all truth? Something not from man, but something from God, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Or maybe you're here, and most, maybe most of you here today would affirm that you believe the Scriptures are from God, that they're infallible, they're true, and they're authoritative in your life. Then I would ask you to consider... Does your life reflect that doctrinal position? 
Does your life look like someone who truly believes that Jesus is coming back and that what you do on this earth truly matters? I know just asking those questions are convicting for me because I, I know the countless excuses that I have in my own heart that I do for my actions that don't represent what I truly believe. Especially this Christmas season, my kids have gotten older and I've had to really check my heart and examine the messages that I send to them about what I value most during the season. Sure, I can say, yes, Jesus is the reason for the joy of the season, but my heart desperately wants to be their source of joy this season in what I give to them on Christmas morning. Brothers and sisters, since we have an authoritative Word of God, which is all-sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness, let us then pay attention to it. Let us build our lives upon it. Let us not waver from it as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. So we've seen so far Peter put forward two, two pieces of evidence, right, that we can trust the future coming of Christ, his eyewitness testimony and a sufficient and trustworthy source in the Scriptures. And now lastly, I want us to consider Peter's exhortation to pay attention in verse 19 and why this exhortation matters for you today. Now, what do I mean when I say something matters or not? Right, usually we mean that there are some consequences that are tied to whether or not we pay attention to the matter at hand. These consequences can be either positive or negative. Let me illustrate, and I want to thank my, my brother Dan Weller for this illustration. I want to imagine with me you're at a baseball game, and someone yells, heads up, but you don't pay attention to the warning. Probably means you're liable to get hit in the head with a very hard baseball coming at you at very fast amounts of speed. Or on the other hand, if the announcer at the baseball game announces your seat number and says, you've won tonight's million-dollar raffle, you would do well to pay attention to that announcement, or you may miss out on a life-changing prize. Paying attention to things that matter, they can either protect you, maybe from something harmful, or provide you with something good. So when Peter tells the church, and by extension to us today, to pay attention to God's Word and the future coming of Christ, it's important because he knows that paying attention to this coming matter will matter because it's going to protect you and it's going to provide for you. Well, what does it protect us from? Well, the Bible tells us that when Christ returns, He will bring His just wrath for sin, bringing everything that was hidden to light and to judge us for what we have done. If you look at 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10, he says this, "'The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed.'" Peter is calling us to pay attention to his message because those who are not prepared for this day and have decided to ignore the warning will not be protected from God's holy wrath, but will receive the due punishment for their error on this day. And friends, it, it may feel 
That like things are just continuing on as they have for 2,000 years. But the eyewitness testimony of Peter, the testimony of Scripture, bear witness to this coming judgment. And if you're here today and, and maybe you're still skeptical of this warning, have you considered that maybe chapter 3, verse 9 is actually talking about you? That the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises of His coming, but is being patient towards you. That He is waiting for you to heed His warning and repent. And if this might be you today, I want to tell you that it's not too late to make yourself ready to meet your glorious Savior. Today, Christ is calling you to find your refuge in Him. Because the one who is bringing the final judgment is the only one who can shelter you from the storm of His wrath. He is the one who has absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for those who put their trust in Him. And this shelter is not just available to the wealthy or to the privileged or those who grew up in a Christian home, but just to all who see the slavery and the bondage of their own sin and see their need for a Savior to set them free. So friend, may today be the day of salvation to you. May today be the day that you pay attention, maybe for the first time, to the warning of His coming and you would find protection in His Son. Yet we know here that Jesus doesn't just provide us protection on the day of the Lord. He provides us even more than that. He provides all that we need for today as we wait for Him. If you look at verse 19, Peter says that paying attention to the prophetic word is like being provided a lamp shining in a dark place. And friends, I know there are many of you here today, you're walking through darkness. Whether it's the darkness of your own sin that feels overwhelming the darkness of depression or pain of your body that weighs heavy on your soul. Maybe it's the, the darkness of grief after losing someone you love or feeling alone on the holidays. Or maybe it's just the darkness of broken dreams, the longing for the child, the longing to be married. Whatever the darkness might be, I pray that you know that there is a light and that light is Jesus that we find described in God's Word. And He tells us that He is coming back. And He is going to make all things new. He is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain anymore. For He will put away the former things and bring a new heavens and a new earth. And everything, every darkness that we went through will all Makes sense. Jesus, the morning star, will dispel the darkness and will rise in your hearts as you see your King face to face. And one day, friends, you will see the one that you've been waiting for. And we can trust that today the light of Christ will never go out for us because the darkness of death could not hold Jesus. And he promises for those who have trusted in him that we too will overcome the greatest darkness because he rose from the dead. And all who trust in him, who long to see his glorious appearing, will experience a forever kingdom with him.
So friends, my closing question to you is, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to the promise of Christ's second coming? Are you shaping your lives around that promise? Do you make decisions about what you watch, about what you say, about where you spend your money because you know your king is coming? Do you live like he's truly coming back or as if the day is not drawing near? 2 Peter 3, 11-12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Pay attention to the message of His coming, for it's true and it matters, and for by paying attention to it, you will find both protection from His wrath and provision in His Word every day that you long and await His glorious appearing. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for the promise of hope in the midst of darkness. Thank You for Your Word that reminds us that You have not left us in darkness, but have given us the light of Your Word to guide us all of our days. Lord, as we long for the day when you fulfill all your sure promises to us to make all things new, would you help us to hold fast to, your, to these precious promises as we endure trials and temptations uh, in this world? Remind us that how we live truly matters and that you have not left us without a light to follow your word and the strength of your spirit. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who, is, who feels like they're not ready to behold the glory of Christ when He comes, would you grant them the gift of repentance, grant them eyes to see and hearts to believe all that Jesus says is true, and that these true things are for them, and they would find their refuge in you. And for all of us, would we be filled with awe and wonder this Christmas season as we worship our King who will reign forevermore. Amen.